listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Good morning. My name is Jim Adams. I'm one of the elders here at Park Springs Bible Church. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that Romans 9 through 11, we're about to dive into that, says that Romans 9 through 11 has as many problems as a hedgehog has prickles. So I want to personally thank Pastor Charlie Cooth for giving me the opportunity this morning for starting with the prickles. No, God's truth is wonderful, rich, and full, and I needed to hear his voice this week in this passage. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts. As it's been prayed already, let our hearts be submissive to your word. Let us rejoice in your word. Let us glorify you in the name of Jesus. Amen. The year 1972, I was a second semester freshman at the University of Missouri in in Columbia. I had that long hair, yes, I did. And in my small college closet, I had a number of pairs of bell-bottom pants. I had some of those wide belts, anybody remember those? Ugly paisley shirts. My favorite musical groups were Simon and Garfunkel, and also the Guess Who. Anybody like the, the, the Guess Who? Yeah, Got No Time, right? Yeah. I thought I was cool. I lived in the men's dorm, and the men's dorms in those days were divided into dormitory houses, and I lived in Stone House, which was sarcastically referred to as Stoned House. There was a lot of drug use. Next door was Crittenden House, sarcastically referred to as the Crit Pit. And one night, a couple of guys, Dan and Bruce, came out of the crit pit, and they came to Stone House, to my door, to talk about God. And I didn't want to talk about God, but they got in the door before I could stop them. And I can't explain why, but I was, I was interested in what they had to say. So I began to study the Gospel of John down in the crit pit with Dan and, and Bruce. And in April of that year, they took me to a spaghetti dinner at the Baptist Student Union, and there was a college baseball player there from SIU, so he had credibility with me. He gave his testimony of how Jesus had changed his life. There was a lot I didn't understand that night, but there were two things I was absolutely clear on. Number one of them, number one was I was a sinner who had sinned a lot, and the distance that I felt between God and me was a result of my sin, not the lack of God's love toward me. The second thing I understood clearly was that Jesus had given himself for me on the cross that I might have life with him, eternal life, his life with the Father, and I wanted that. And that night I I put my faith in Christ and he has brought into my life radical, beautiful, joyful change that he continues to bring because I still need it. I look back on that moment 
and I ask, why? Why would God ever care about an immature, insecure, thinks he's hot but he's not, college freshman? Why? Why would he care about me? And before we move into Romans 9 this morning, I'd like to ask you to reflect on God's mercy story in Christ in your life. Think back to that time, maybe when you had little or no interest in God. Or think back to those little, small moments or even those strange circumstances in which God began, in which God began to move in your life. Or think about all the obstacles that you put between yourself and God, and still, God would not be stopped. And if this morning you're still in the process of thinking about what God's mercy story could look like in your life, think about the fact that you're here this morning by God's prodding and, and leading. So what does this have to do with Romans 9? It has everything to do with Romans 9. Because in Romans 9, Paul wants to help us hang on to God's mercy story in Christ even as we walk beside and love those who are not yet embracing God's mercy story for them. So let's turn to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read the last three verses of Romans chapter 8 because remember, there were no chapter divisions in the Bible until about the year 1200. So Romans 8, 37, 39, that Jared preached on two weeks ago, says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says Paul, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Incredible, amazing, awesome. Sign me up right now. Who, who doesn't want this? And then Paul drops the bomb in Romans 9. Verses 1 and 2. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? It's because so many of my Jewish countrymen don't believe this message of mercy in Jesus Christ, of inseparable love in Jesus Christ is for them. In fact, some are saying if that's how it works, if God's love is all tied up in the person of Jesus Christ, count me out, I'm not interested. The truth is, Paul was considered a traitor by some of his fellow Jews that felt like God's incredible, amazing love was exclusively for them. So how does Paul respond to those who resist or reject the message of, of mercy in the gospel, and how do you and me respond to those who resist or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially those we love with all our heart? Do we get angry with them? Do we get angry with God? 
Do we get frustrated, discouraged, maybe even become a little bit apathetic? Is God's gospel all that beautiful, all that powerful? Is God fair? Is he being just? Have any of you experienced those feelings? Romans 9 is a prickly passage that touches on a lot of issues that we don't have time for this, mor for this morning. So I want us to focus on three things to hold on to. Three things that Paul wants us to hold on to as we walk out this story of God's mercy in my life and walk alongside those who have not yet embraced that story for their life. Number one, first thing to hold on to, hold on to compassionate conviction. Compassionate conviction. Hold on to compassionate conviction, especially when someone rejects or belittles or mocks the gospel message. Look at Paul's conviction, his compassionate conviction in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, separated from Christ, thinking about Romans 8, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul does not reject or belittle or mock those who reject or belittle or mock the gospel. Instead, he's filled with compassion. A compassion so deep, he's essentially saying here, I would do whatever it takes. I would make whatever sacrifice might be necessary if my countrymen could just experience the wonder of Christ's redeeming love for them. He says, I would even, if it were possible, but it's not. He said, I would even give up all the riches of my own salvation in Christ if I thought that would help them to experience God's redeeming love in Christ. Why so much compassion, Paul? Paul has compassion because Paul has conviction. Paul has the conviction that God has held absolutely nothing back in his way of calling Israel to himself to receive God's love for them in Christ. And Paul begins to talk about everything that, that God has done in verse 4. He says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. This is not a random list of six blessings. This is the story. This is the story of all that God has done to call Israel into a relationship with himself. Paul says theirs is the adoption. Exodus says that Israel was God's firstborn son. In Hosea 11, God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. And this was the glory as well, the, the glory of God moving in a cloud of pillar and a pillar of cloud and fire as he led Israel through the desert. God's glory when he opened the Red Sea so that Israel could pass through safely on dry ground. And then Paul says, the covenants, because God had said to Israel, I have chosen you to be a people for my treasured possession." And then comes the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, in which God shows Israel how Israel can, can walk with him and fear him and love him and serve him with all their heart 
and soul and mind. And then comes the worship. God drew near. He made his presence dwell in the tabernacle in the desert. He filled the temple, Solomon's temple, with his glory such that the priests could not even stand there. And finally, the promises, the promises of the coming Messiah. The Christ, the King, prophet, priest, and king, the one who would bring in God's kingdom. And Paul is saying here, what more could God do? Has he left anything undone? Is not his grace extravagant? And Paul goes on to say even more in verse 5. He says, to them, to the Israelites, belong the patriarchs as part of their family tree. That would blow up Ancestry.com. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David. And then the capstone, the last part of verse 5. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. One of the strongest statements of Christ's deity that you'll ever find in the New Testament. This is Paul's heart cry of compassionate conviction. He's saying, oh, my beloved countrymen, can't you see, won't you see the magnificence, the extravagance of God's love for you in Jesus Christ? He has held nothing back. God has been righteous with you. That's why Romans 1.17 says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Do you? Do I? Do we have compassionate conviction? Do you? Do I have compassionate conviction? Because we understand that everything that Paul lays out here in verses 4 and 5, it, it is yours. It's all yours and more in Jesus Christ. The adoption. You've been adopted as beloved sons and daughters in Christ. The glory, you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ in glory. The covenants, God, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Christ established his new covenant with you by his blood. The giving of the law, Jesus is our, our teacher, the living example of God's word. The worship, you had the indwelling Holy Spirit to worship God in spirit and truth. You are the temple of the living God. And we all have, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are what? Are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's why I wanted us to start this morning thinking about our mercy story. Because all this and more is ours, and, and it gives us this compassionate conviction like Paul had to open our emotions to the Holy Spirit and even say, here I am, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want to help others find your mercy story for them. But, but then comes the next question. If this story, this mercy story of God and Jesus Christ is so marvelous, God, I, I don't understand why not everybody's flocking to this. 
Is there something wrong? I'm thinking about people I love, people that you love, God. Is there something wrong here? Something wrong in the way that I talk about the gospel? Something wrong with the gospel? Do do you not see this? Why are you not working? I'm praying, but I I I don't see you working. Second thing we need to hold on to, then, Second thing to hold on to is God's sovereign working. Hold on to God's sovereign working. Remembering what Deuteronomy 32.4 says, Our God is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright in He is all in all he does. So Paul says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. There's nothing lacking in the beautiful extravagance of what God promises in his word. But, says Paul, you know, he's talking now especially to his Jewish countrymen, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, meaning that just because you're born of Jewish parents doesn't mean you necessarily have a living, saving faith in God. It has never been by race. It has always been by grace. And that is what Paul wants his fellow Jews to understand. So he's going to give them two examples. Example number one is God's sovereign working of grace with Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Look at verse we're going to, 7. We're going to read 7 through 9. Paul says, and not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, says Paul, that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise of grace were counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, God's promise of grace About this time next year, I, God, will return. And Sarah will have a son by grace. God is is sovereignly sovereignly working here in in, in Abraham and and Sarah and, and Isaac who will carry on the promises that God has made that you will be blessed and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham, of course, he hears that, and he says, great, I love it, I am so happy. Actually, he doesn't say that. There's not time this morning to look at Genesis 17, but Abraham says in Genesis 17, 18, O Lord, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael. If you know your Bible, Ishmael about this time um, would have, be about 12 years old. And Genesis 17 says that Abraham laughed when God said that. He, Abraham is basically saying, Lord, I'm 100. Sarah's 90. Don't you get it? It would be so, so much easier if it were Ishmael. Why don't we just do this the easy way? through Ishmael. You know what I see in Abraham? I see me. 
I see my own desire to control and determine and dictate how God's grace should be working in my life and in the lives of others, especially those I love. Don't look at me like that. Have you ever, yeah, have you ever said, Lord, here's a good plan? Yeah. You could do this, and then you could do this, and then this would happen, and then everybody would really be happy with you, and I would be happy, and God says, I'm not doing that. I'm doing something else to bless all the families in the earth. He goes on to tell Abraham, I will bless Ishmael and multiply him greatly, but my sovereign working is other. It's different. Example number two, Jacob and Esau, the plot thickens. Look at verse 10. It says, and not only so, so here comes the second example, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So this is going to be a more convincing example. So some, because someone could say, well, you know, Isaac's mom was Sarah, and Ishmael's mom was Hagar. So that explains the difference. But Paul is saying, no, here we have the twins. Obviously, same mom, same dad, same home. He says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. No, Lord. That, that's not how we do things here. It's the elder son. The elder son gets the birthright. And God says, I'm doing something else. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Ouch. The elephant in the text. Does God really love some people and hate others? Does he play favorites? This is a tough verse. And as I was studying this passage, an article came out in a, in a pastoral journal that talked about how pastors could use AI to help them prepare their sermons. So, yeah, I, I, I did. I, I went there. There's a, sort of a Bible version of chat GPT called BibleMate. So BibleMate said this about verse 13. Said, this is a difficult and controversial topic. Thanks. But ultimately, we can trust that God is good and just in all that he does. It's good, but I was hoping for more, so I, I went to chat GPT. Chat GPT with verse 13 says, no results. Romans 9, no results. Meaning that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has stumped the very best that AI has to offer. So what does this mean? When Paul says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he's quoting from an Old Testament verse that we'll look at in just a moment. But first I want to explain that hate is not our idea of this emotional despising and loathing. It is a comparative expression of love. And we know that. We know that from Jesus' very lips because Jesus said this in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not, what? Hate his own 
father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yet, and yes, hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying that we should loathe and despise our husband, our wife, our kids, or our own life. He is saying it's a matter of comparative love. He's saying your love for me and your following of me should be so intense, so loyal, so full of love that no other love compares with it. It's an expression of comparative love. Okay, when you study the Bible, here's a principle of Bible study. When you study the Bible and you see in the New Testament a verse that is quoted from the Old Testament, it is very important to go to the Old Testament and understand how that verse is being used in the New Testament. So we're going to put up on the screen here the verse that passage that Paul is using. It's from Malachi chapter 1. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. So we have Malachi 1. There we go. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi the prophet. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, Israel, how have you loved us? When Malachi writes this verse, the nation of Israel is back in the land, back after having been exiled for their sin and idolatry in Babylonia. God has wiped away Israel's sin. God has said, I will send you the Messiah with all of his grace and majesty to do things you can't even imagine. I, I will do that. And Israel says, how do you love us? You say you, you loved us, but if you love us so much, why are we a second-rate power? Why do we have a rinky-dink temple? Where's the wealth? Where's the prosperity? Where's the good times? God, this is not the grace we deserve. Busted. Yeah. Busted. The passage goes on. Is not Esau... Jacob's brother declares the Lord. God is saying, do you think you have rights over my grace? Do you think you are so much better than Esau that you can dictate and determine how I should give you my grace? So here it comes. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country, I have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God is saying, I have loved you despite all your sin. Why do you think you are the owners of my grace? Of course, we would never do that, would we? No, no. Wouldn't it be nice to be in charge of God's sovereign grace for just one day? Then I would be sovereign then I could decide who's in and who's out. I could decide when God should give his grace and how he should give his grace and what he should do with his, his grace. And, you know, on my, on my good days, I know that's really a dumb idea and that I can trust God's grace. But you know where this shows up? It shows up in our passionate pleading for those that we passionately love who are resisting the gospel or rejecting the gospel or just not taking seriously 
all the grace that God would give them in Jesus Christ. And so we pray for that spouse and we pray for that son and we pray for that father and that mother and that, and that brother and we pay, pray for that friend that we, that we love so much. Oh God, let loose your saving grace. And when the needle doesn't move, okay, Lord, just, just tell me what I need to do. Do I need to pray more? I'll do it. Do I need to fast? I'll even do that. Is there a book that would help? I'll buy it. Is there a silver bullet podcast? The link is on the way. What do I need to say? What do I need to do? Do you see, oh God, my anguish? I, I, I know you love this person even more than I do. Just, just tell me what to do to get your grace. This is part of our family story. It's part of the family story of many of you who are here this morning. And God says, hold on. Hold on to my sovereign working. And let's be honest, sometimes that doesn't feel very satisfying, does it? And sometimes it just doesn't. And I want to share with you rapidly three truths about God's sovereign working. Truth number one, God's sovereign working desires that every person experience the fullness of his saving grace in Christ. We're going to put some verses up here. I want these, I want you to see these. They speak of God's desire. 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The apostle Peter said, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the most famous Bible verse of all, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. It's always been that way, even in Isaiah 45, 22, God said, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved for I am God and there is no other. Truth number two. God's sovereign working never eliminates our human responsibility and choice. Whenever Esau appears in the Bible, Esau is always presented as being responsible for the choices he made. In fact, human choice is part of God's sovereign working. You remember Esau's story? He comes in from hunting. He's starving. He's, he's so hungry. I guess there were no elf that day. And Jacob is cooking up this lentil stew, hot bread. He says, give me some of that stew, some of that bread. Jacob says, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, done deal. What, what good are God's blessings to me? I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't care about being a blessing. I don't care about the fact that all the nations 
all the families of the earth will be blessed in me. Just give me some of that stew. And Genesis 25, 34 says this, impacting it. It says, Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. God's sovereign working never excuses, never eliminates our Esau choices. God, I got to have this. I had to have that stew, that success, that satisfaction I want. What good are your blessings to me if I can't have what I want? So was God sovereignly choosing, or was Esau personally choosing? And the answer is yes. Yes. That's the third truth. God's sovereign working is outside of time, space, and linear sequence. What I mean by that is that in God's working, there is no contradiction between his sovereign choosing and Esau's personal choosing because he works outside of our concepts of linear sequence. Now, we always think with our finite minds, we start with A and then we move from A to B and then B produces C and the result of A, B, and C is D, but God is not bound by that. The most extensive contemporary commentary on Romans by Douglas Moo says this, the double emphasis, I think he gets it right, the double emphasis of God's choosing and human decision at the same time may strain the boundaries of logic or remain unsatisfyingly complex, but it has the virtue of reflecting the balanced perspective of Scripture. Please don't try to answer all these questions using a theological system that seems to give you every answer. Hold on to God's sovereign working and then bow down and worship and worship and say glory Glory to the just and merciful one. Because Psalm 145.9 says, God is good to all and he has mercy on all he has made. We hold on to compassionate conviction. We hold on to God's sovereign working. And number three, we hold on. We hold on tenaciously and faithfully. We hold on to God's mercy in Christ. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul understands our struggle. He gets it. And he says, by no means, no. Verse 15. For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But wait a minute, Paul, that doesn't really sound like much of an answer to me. What do, you, what do you mean? How, how do I know on whom God will have mercy and compassion? And maybe this morning you think you, do, you don't know, but you know what? You do know. You know. Because God has told us in the first eight chapters of Romans that I will have mercy, mercy without measure on anyone, anywhere, 
who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will give mercy and compassion to anyone, anywhere, who puts their faith in Christ because Romans 3.24 says this, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The cross of Jesus Christ in which he gives himself for you and to you is his, is God's resounding answer to the mystery of his sovereign working. And so Paul concludes in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, not on race, not on my expectations, not on my demands. It depends on God who has mercy. Mercy in Jesus Christ who said, come to me, all you are weak, Oh, you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Mercy without measure. So how do we land the plane? Two quick applications this morning. How do we hold on to God's mercy in Christ? Be a seeker of God's mercy and be a sharer of God's mercy. First, a seeker of mercy. We all need mercy. A frequent prayer of ours should be, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy on me and my pain. Have mercy on me in my struggle with the same temptation, the same anger, the same envy. Have mercy. Sometimes we say that grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God's not giving us what we do deserve. But, but I, and that's true. But I think it goes deeper in that. Mercy is God's pouring his grace in Jesus Christ down to the deepest cracks and crevices of my brokenness. Seek mercy. Second, be a sharer of mercy. When you and I share the gospel with somebody, we're not trying to get this person to believe everything we believe or to become an evangelical. We're pointing this person toward Christ to try and help him or her believe that God can bring forth a mercy story in his or her life. We, we, we all need help. If you're here this morning... You're probably here because somebody helped you find the mercy story of Jesus in your life. More than 50 years ago, a couple of ordinary college guys, Dan and Bruce, walked out of the crypt pit. They went over to Stonehouse. And all they just, they just helped an insecure, immature college freshman find his mercy story. In Jesus Christ. And if you reflect on your own mercy story this morning, I don't think you're going to say, well, there was just a moment when I saw my spiritual need and I just made the smart decision to put my faith in. No. You're going to say, I really can't explain it. God was speaking. God was working in my pain. God was calling. 
God was leading, God was, was on the move. Because despite all the issues that we have here in Romans 9, there is, there is one thing here that is absolutely sure, and that is this morning, God is offering you His unlimited mercy, grace, love, and salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. God is giving you the opportunity this morning to say yes. To say yes to Jesus and experience His beautiful, radical, joyful, eternal, transforming of your life. And we come to the end of this message and the greatest mystery of Romans 9 for me is why would the eternal, righteous, loving God ever show mercy to somebody like me? Why would he give mercy to me and his son, Jesus, the Christ, God over all, blessed forever? I will never understand it, but I will be eternally grateful. Let's pray. I think many of us, Father, as we stand before you this morning, would say that. We don't understand, but we are eternally grateful. We rest in your promises. We seek your grace. We seek your mercy. Help us to share that mercy with others. Thank you for Jesus, your Son, God over all, blessed forever.